Hello, and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Elizabeth of York, Part 2. Welcome back. I hope you all got your questions in for the end of the series slash one-year Q&A episode. I am working on that right now as this episode is being released, and I'm really excited to get it out to you all next week. So hopefully you got those in. This week, I'll be starting with some legal news. Not for me, but for Elizabeth of York and her siblings. I hope that won't scare any of you away. In January of 1484, Richard III would make Elizabeth and her siblings' social illegitimacy legal when he had the Titulus Regius passed in Parliament. This document outlines his claim to the throne and affirmed him as king. It also called her grandmother and mother witches. Legally, Parliament couldn't declare a marriage invalid. Only the church could do that. But it could declare that Elizabeth and her siblings were banned from inheriting. In the end, it doesn't matter, because regardless of Elizabeth's status, Parliament declared Richard III king, as was their right. While Richard III had won this, he was losing the popularity contest that all rulers need to win to maintain power. He was accused by the Chancellor of France of killing his nephews. The French king, Louis XI, was recorded to believe that Richard had done so. For him to have any chance to recover, he needed his nieces. While they were legally, at least spuriously, bastards, they were still recognized bastards, and there was no question of their parentage. Richard might have even suggested, through intermediaries, that he would marry Elizabeth of York to his son and heir. Not long after he had them declared illegitimate, Richard began in earnest to tempt Elizabeth Woodville to allow her daughters out of Westminster Abbey. In theory, he could have forced them out. He did have the soldiers around the abbey still, and his former sister-in-law would have known this. He sent his supporters to try to convince the family to return to court. Finally, on the 1st of March, 1484, he swore an oath publicly at council that he would offer his nieces his protection if they left sanctuary. He promised to find them good husbands and to provide them with dowries. He also promised to never imprison them in the tower. Interestingly, Richard III is never recorded making a similar oath about his nephews. Hmm. With this religious promise made, it would have been next to impossible for Elizabeth and her sisters to remain in the abbey. A king was deeply bound by his religious vows, and if her mother kept them in the abbey, it would look like she didn't trust an oath sworn before the peers of the realm. While Elizabeth's mother may not have trusted her former brother-in-law, she had to trust the other leading men of the country. Elizabeth of York and her sisters were at first placed in the queen's household. While being demoted from royal princess to now bastards would have been difficult, returning to court would have been amazing. Elizabeth and her sisters had been raised near court and were often there around the holidays, so finally leaving the abbey would have been a relief, even if they were possibly afraid for their futures. Their mother left sanctuary at some point after them. It appears that the royal princesses joined her at Croyland when she did. By August of 1484, Elizabeth of York was residing in Sheen. 1484 also saw rumors in Europe that Richard III was going to marry Elizabeth of York to William, the bastard son of Bishop Stillington. Yes, the bishop who had possibly accused her father of marrying her mother while married to another woman. The person who she could possibly blame for having been declared a bastard. Now, there are no English sources for this, so it's likely just idle gossip. 
But it shows how much Elizabeth's status had dropped if this rumor could be started. Not only could people believe she was to be married off to the son of a man who helped ruin her family, but an actual bastard, and not a royal one. Neither Elizabeth nor her mother would ever agree to this. So even if it were a true offer, it doesn't matter. In the end, the poor young man was captured and taken prisoner to France, where he was accidentally starved to death. Honestly, I feel really bad for him. In April that year, Richard III's only heir, Edward of Middleham, died. With his passing, Richard's chosen heir became his nephew, John de la Pole, a name you may remember from Lady Margaret's episodes. For Elizabeth, losing her cousin would have been sad, but it would have destabilized her uncle's reign and possibly made her a more attractive heir to replace him. Richard's ultimate goal, though, would have been to have more children of his own. There was one thing standing in his way, his wife. Richard, as you know, had been married to his cousin Anne Neville, the daughter of Warwick the Kingmaker and the widow of Edward of Westminster, the late Prince of Wales, since 1472. They only had one child, the late Edward, and it appears that Anne was unable to conceive any further children because I can find no records of other pregnancies. In Anne's defense, very quickly, there are very few records about her in general, so she could have had other pregnancies that we don't know about. At this point, though, Anne Neville had been ill for a while. Her symptoms and statements at the time matched tuberculosis. She was, as one could imagine, devastated by the death of her son. If she was ill with tuberculosis, this could explain her having only one child. One of the complications of the disease can be fertility issues. It's important to note that a great amount of Richard III's popularity in the North, where he was still popular, was based on his marriage to Queen Anne. With his queen ill, Richard may have been on the lookout for a replacement. A shocking rumor began to spread that Richard had set his eyes on Elizabeth. Yes, pulling one out of the Habsburg playbook. There were further rumors that she was equally interested in her uncle. These rumors were shocking. Uncle-niece marriage was uncommon among royalty or anyone at this time. And Richard's wife was still alive. Oh yes, this suggestion was a scandal. Elizabeth and her sisters had been moved back to Queen Anne's service around Christmas of 1484, which brought her back to court. These rumors about her or her uncle's mutual affection probably wouldn't have started had she not been back at court. Queen Anne's illness wouldn't have helped either. It wouldn't help that in addition to the queen being ill, there were rumors that Anne had been unable to... Well, perform her marital duties for quite some time. The rumors really were flying throughout late 1484 and early 1485. These included Thomas Langton, the Bishop of St. David, sharing that the king's appetites in that marital area were increasing. Yeah, I feel like this level of gossip is indicative of a messy court. It's important to remember that for all Elizabeth of York knew, at this moment in time, Richard III could be king for another three or four decades. No one knows if she wanted to marry her uncle. Until the 16th of March, 1485, when Queen Anne died, they would have required an annulment and dispensation for this to even happen. And no one had set precedent for this to happen in England yet. 
The event that sent tongues wagging, though, happened at Christmas of 1484, when Elizabeth of York wore the same outfit as Queen Anne. Sumptuary laws, allowing only people of certain rank or class to wear certain items of fashion, were in effect. If you're interested, I can do a This Too Shall Pass episode on this. Elizabeth of York, as a royal bastard, not a princess, shouldn't have been wearing the same clothing as the queen. There are only two ways she would have been allowed to wear those clothes at court. Either the queen had allowed it, or the king had. Queen Anne was unwell, and it's not known if she and Elizabeth were particularly close. Remember, we know very little about Anne Neville. There is a small chance that the queen wanted to support her niece. But most evidence points to Richard III, allowing or encouraging his niece to dress this way. What reason could he have had for wanting to suggest that he was going to marry Elizabeth? There are two obvious options. Either he wanted to marry his niece and was hoping his wife would die soon, which is pretty harsh, or he wanted to make people think he was going to marry her. Why would he want to make people think that? Well, a great deal of a woman's value was in her virtue. An unmarried woman needed to be a virgin, or it would be insulting to the man she eventually married. Even a widow needed to protect her reputation. Yes, it's a toxic way to think, but it was the way things were then. Richard III could foul his niece by implying she was close enough to him to have sexual relations. It would hurt any claim that was made through her. Do I suggest that Richard III was doing this to mess with Henry Tudor? Why don't I think he was actually planning to marry his niece? Well, legally, his niece was still a bastard. In addition, the only thing she brought to his table was the possible ability to bear children. After his wife's death, Richard III began to negotiate with the King of Portugal, John II, for his sister, Joanna. Joanna may not have been interested in marrying anyone, but it shows that Richard was trying to find a legitimate bride. This further indicates to me that this rumor was one-sided, Richard towards his niece, and meant to stir up issues with and for Henry Tudor. I think at the end of the day, this shows us as much of Richard III's character, his willingness to embarrass his wife and risk his niece's reputation, currently her only currency, all to try and one-up Henry Tudor. Had he been originally planning to marry his niece, it's unlikely his supporters would have stood by him. It would imply that he felt she was legitimate, regardless of anything he had pushed through Parliament, and would be everything short of admitting her brothers were dead. Regardless of what had happened to her younger brothers, her uncle was guilty of the death of one of her older brothers. To most of us, that wouldn't be our first or even second choice in spouse. There is a 17th century discussion of a letter that purports that Elizabeth was interested in her uncle. The only problem? There are no copies of this letter, and a summary of it that is in the Cotton Collection is damaged to the point where it is near useless. The writer who summarized the original letter did claim that Elizabeth had written to the Duke of Norfolk to express her want that he help arrange a marriage between her and her uncle. This letter and its summary are the subject of a great deal of speculation and questioning. Some think that the letter was asking Norfolk to assist Elizabeth in a royal marriage, possibly with a Portuguese prince even. Remember how her uncle was negotiating for a Portuguese princess? There's a possibility of a double marriage being negotiated. We cannot know what Elizabeth thought of all of this. 
Even if the letter to Norfolk is found, and there is a real chance it may be, a lot of these letters are in archives that are slowly being gone through and it takes years and years. We won't know if she felt that or if she was told to write it. The truth is, women in this time had minimal agency when it came to marriage. Her own parents and her maternal grandparents were rare couples. In the upper classes, most women married who they were told to, and so did most men. Amy Lysons even suggests that Elizabeth may have been a spy for her mother and Lady Margaret Beaufort at Richard's court. Eventually, the rumors that Richard was planning on marrying his niece scandalized the court enough that he had to publicly declare to counsel that he was not planning to do so. Interestingly, Elizabeth's two most recent biographers each take a different stand on how she felt about her uncle. Alison Weir suggests she might have wanted to marry him, and Amy Lysons suggests she was just protecting herself. While Richard didn't marry Elizabeth, he did see to it that her younger sister, Cecily, was married. When Henry Tudor swore his oath to marry Elizabeth, he stated his second choice would be Cecily if Elizabeth was unavailable. Whatever Elizabeth thought of her uncle's maneuvers, she had little say in her own life. She was a bird in the cliché gilded cage. She'd once been the future Queen of France. Now she was a bastard with unflattering rumors all around her. But things would be changing for her quickly. While the Song of Lady Bessie, written in the reign of Henry VII, paints Elizabeth of York as conspiring with her future stepfather-in-law, Stanley, to bring Henry Tudor into England, there isn't a great deal of evidence that she played an active role in his return. Outside of being the rallying point for Woodville supporters and the disaffected Yorkist contingent, there was little she could do but survive and hope her uncle didn't marry her off to someone questionable. Henry Tudor would have heard the rumors from England that Elizabeth may be made to marry her uncle and that the next oldest daughter of Edward IV, Cecily, had been married to a rather minor noble. Anne of York, the third surviving daughter of Edward IV, was only 10, so not a viable option. While Henry Tudor was preparing ships and men for a trip to England, Richard III was planning what to do if he landed, and Elizabeth was waiting. She had been sent to Sheriff Hutton, a village in North Yorkshire, with her sisters and her cousins, Edward of Clarence, the Earl of Warwick, George Clarence's only surviving son, and John de la Pole, the Earl of Lincoln. As you all should know by now, Henry Tudor miraculously defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth and was acclaimed king. He ruled that his reign had started the day before Bosworth, a shrewd legal maneuver which meant that all who stood against him at the battle were guilty of treason. He also declared that his claim was by conquest. In theory, he didn't need to marry Elizabeth of York to claim his throne. After all, William the Bastard hadn't married an Englishwoman when he conquered England. Matilda of Flanders would have had some thoughts about that. But those who have listened to my first series know that William's youngest son did marry a pseudo-Englishwoman as a further step to securing the English throne. The simple fact, though, is that no one wanted to go back to the days of the conquest. To secure his throne, Henry, now Henry VII, instead, could marry the rightful heiress and make most people in the kingdom happy. Most, not all. Not long after his win, Henry VII sent an escort to bring Elizabeth, along with her sisters and younger cousins, to London. De La Pole had fought at Bosworth on the Yorkist side. Henry was 28 at this point, and Elizabeth was 19. The couple met for the first time in autumn of 1485, 
likely at Lady Margaret Beaufort's Cold Harbor residence or at Elizabeth Woodville's London home. By planning to marry Elizabeth, Henry wasn't just taking advantage of her claim. He was taking advantage of her popularity. Remember, her father had literally been acclaimed in the streets of London. She was beloved by the common people of England, both as his child and because she was seen as the perfect daughter, the wronged sister of their supposedly slain King Edward V. The common people would have been angered that Richard III would have dared to besmirch her name with his scheming. When Henry VII became king, he had to know that he couldn't delay this marriage for long. Henry was crowned on the 30th of October, 1485. It makes sense for him to be crowned before his wedding if he wanted to emphasize that his kingship was based on his win at Bosworth. But he really would need Elizabeth to hold things. He had defeated Richard III with a small force. If his stepfather and stepuncle hadn't joined his side, there's no way he would have had a chance. If a force that small can take a kingdom, then something more than force was needed to hold it. But there was something delaying the wedding. Papal dispensation. Henry had applied for it back in 1483, when he announced he would take the throne of England and marry Elizabeth. The problem was that the church did actually expect women to consent to their marriages, and needed Elizabeth to jointly request the dispensation. So a second dispensation was requested. Henry also needed to hold his first parliament and repeal the Titulus Regius, that act that had made Elizabeth and her siblings bastards. Remember, he also ordered that all copies of this act be destroyed, including the copy in the parliamentary rolls. He wasn't messing around. There was also an outbreak of the plague through the autumn of 1485. By delaying their wedding, though, the couple was assured that it wouldn't be challenged later. After watching her parents' marriage be declared invalid, this might have been somewhat of a relief to Elizabeth. This delay also gave the couple a chance to get to know each other. Yes, this marriage was arranged and it would be happening no matter what. Both members needed it in so many ways. Henry needed it to give his rule any chance of succeeding without constant warfare. And Elizabeth needed it to have a place in society. She had known from a young age that she was meant to be a queen. Yes, Queen of England wasn't what she had been raised to expect, which is probably a good thing, but it was a good option when compared to being the wife of the bastard of a minor bishop. By spending time together before the wedding, they could start to understand the person they would be living with. It's actually a good thing in the long run, because it turns out they actually cared about each other deeply. Parliament publicly requested that Henry marry Elizabeth on the 10th of December, 1485. The public really, really wanted this marriage to occur. There is a chance that Elizabeth and Henry consummated their relationship prior to their marriage. The couple was married on the 18th of January, 1486. They were likely well-dressed. While her new husband had spent his life on the run, he quickly figured out that displaying majesty was the first step to being seen as majestic. Their oldest son, Prince Arthur, was born overnight on the 19th to 20th of September, 1486. For anyone who's good at math, 38 weeks prior to that date is the 28th of December, which is the normal length of a pregnancy from conception to birth. Remember how horribly the accusations that her mother wasn't Edward IV's lawful wife had hurt both Elizabeth, her siblings, and her mother? And the accusations of Edward IV not being his father's son had hurt him. 
Do you think for one moment that both Elizabeth of York and Henry VII would risk the legitimacy of their children if they were not sure they were to be married? Unless anyone finds evidence that the couple consummated their marriage before they were married, we'll just have to leave this as one of the mysteries for the ages. <laughs> I personally think Arthur was just a little early and conceived on their wedding night. And after this message, you'll hear more. After Arthur's birth, Elizabeth's churching, her ritual purification before her return to society, was delayed due to her being ill. As I mentioned in Margaret Beaufort's episodes, luxury was a large part of life at court. Elizabeth's father, when taking hints from the Burgundian court, had made his court beautiful. Henry VII did the same thing when he took control. And part of that was making sure the two women in his life were cared for materially. Something to remember when looking at the relationships between royal couples. Money talks. A lot. We often won't find the couple's private letters, and we're almost never privy to their private conversations. But we'll see the funds that the powerful member of the couple gives to the less powerful member. A king who cares for his queen will make sure she had funding. He will give her funds and gifts constantly. Remember, Isabella of France rebelled against her husband when he took away her funding, lands, and her children. Really, he just took it all. Henry's books, though, show quite the opposite. He was incredibly generous to Elizabeth throughout their entire marriage, and it shows. Elizabeth was finally crowned on the 25th of November, 1487. Her coronation had been planned by her husband and his mother. You'll remember from Elizabeth's first episode, and from Margaret Beaufort's episodes, that the two women knew each other well. Elizabeth's mother-in-law had been a member of Edward IV's court. While she may not have known her husband that well, her in-laws were not strangers, and it probably would have been helpful to have the older woman assisting her through things. Elizabeth's mother was also involved in her life throughout Henry's early reign. Watching her daughter be crowned would have been such a relief to Elizabeth Woodville. Remember, she had lost three sons, one for sure via execution and two misplaced. Plus, had her marriage declared invalid and then declared valid. It's a lot to go through. Knowing her daughter was queen would be amazing. And what is a rare occurrence in any coronation, Elizabeth of York's grandmother, Cecily Neville, was present. Remember, most queens of England had been foreign and would have no family present, or very few. But this time, one of the great matriarchs of England and a popular woman in her own right was there. The York and Woodville women knew how to gain the crowd. Henry VII and Margaret Beaufort watched Elizabeth's coronation from behind a screen. It was rather important that she be the focus of the event. Her mother, though, wasn't present. She had retired to Bermondsey Abbey, where she would live out the majority of the remainder of her life. There is no lack of rumor when it comes to Henry VII's treatment of Elizabeth's mother. Historical fiction likes to paint him as punishing her for supposedly conspiring with Richard III or for spreading rumors that her royal sons were still alive. In reality, Elizabeth and her mother were free to meet regularly. Henry referred to his mother-in-law fondly in his papers, and she was a welcome guest at court. While her property was handed over to her daughter, this could simply be that maintaining a queen, a dowager queen, and his own mother was a lot financially for Henry. It could also be that Elizabeth Woodville wanted to retire from public life, and her needs were taken care of. Further evidence of this is seen in the marriages arranged for her younger daughters. Cecily was, as you know, married to Henry's maternal half-uncle. 
Her next daughter, Anne, was married to Thomas Howard, the man who would eventually become the Duke of Norfolk. And Catherine was married to William Courtney, Earl of Devon. Her youngest daughter became a nun. These were prestigious matches, and of much more value to each of Elizabeth's sisters than they would have likely had under their uncle. Anyone who's a fan of Tudor history will know that Henry VII is described as a miser, hoarding money like a dragon as though it were going out of style. Interestingly, his books don't actually point to this. Towards the end of his reign, yes, he was a bit more financially conservative. But early in his reign, he used his funds to display his majesty. As I've mentioned, part of being a royal couple is bestowing gifts on each other. Henry's books show that he was more than generous with his wife. The royal couple were regularly richly dressed, according to all accounts, and Henry's records show that he regularly purchased jewelry for his wife. The couple regularly threw parties that included entertainers, music, sumptuous decorations, and, as expected, amazing food. Throughout her marriage, Elizabeth was regularly pregnant. This made her more active in London due to the difficulty in traveling while pregnant. She would have her second child, Margaret, at the end of November 1489. Both her mother and mother-in-law were present. Apparently, Princess Margaret's birth wasn't recorded in most chronicles of the day. Such is the life of a girl in the Middle Ages. And sometimes their younger brothers. Less than two years later, at the end of June 1491, Elizabeth gave birth to her third child, Henry, the spare for Arthur. Again, his birth wasn't very recorded either. Her oldest three children would survive into their teens. Sadly, their fourth wouldn't. Elizabeth, named after her mother and grandmother, was born in July 1492. Elizabeth of York's mother had died not long before this child's birth. Sadly, little Elizabeth would die three years later. After her birth, though, there is a break in Elizabeth's pregnancies. Within the time period of these pregnancies, Elizabeth and Henry had to deal with the Lambert Seminole uprising that I discussed in Margaret Beaufort's episodes. I promised I'd cover the other pretender of Henry VII's reign in Elizabeth's episodes. So here it is. In 1490, rumors began to circulate that the misplaced younger son of Edward IV, Elizabeth's youngest brother, Richard, was alive and well. Now, there had been rumors circulating since Richard III had misplaced the boys that they had survived. A young man from Tournai in modern-day Belgium, Perkin Warbeck, presented himself as Richard of Shrewsbury, the younger of the two princes in the tower, as we call them today. This is an interesting choice, and it's possibly caused by Perkin's age. Richard, unlike his older brother, Edward V, had grown up in court. Edward V, as the heir, was raised away from court, and most wouldn't have known what he looked like. But Richard should be recognizable. Unlike Simnel, Warbeck had much less powerful support within England. Simnel had a few earls supporting him. On the other hand, Warbeck only had a few lords, the most powerful being Henry's step-uncle. You'll remember that William Stanley was executed for this. Warbeck, though, did have support outside of England. The King of France, at this point Charles VIII, had temporarily supported Warbeck, but a peace treaty with Henry VII ended that support. After leaving the French court, Warbeck went to Burgundy. Margaret of Burgundy, the Dowager Duchess, and Elizabeth of York's aunt recognized him as her nephew in the early 1490s. When I say recognized, I mean that in the formal way, as in acknowledging the existence of. She would have had almost no idea what her nephew would have looked like, since she'd never met him. 
The Duke of Burgundy, Philip of Habsburg, the handsome, his portrait suggests this soubriquet is a bit of flattery, had started supporting Warbeck, and as a result, Henry VII placed a trade embargo on Burgundy. Warbeck landed in England in July of 1495. His trip was paid for by his purported aunt, Margaret of Burgundy. He had, of course, wanted support from the people. The goal was to present himself as the York heir, and the Yorks in general were popular with the people. But the people did not come out for him. Instead, Kentish forces came out in support of Henry VII and ran Warbeck out of town. He then went to Ireland, where he was again unsuccessful at launching an attack. After this failure, Warbeck went to Scotland, where James IV decided to use this pretender to mess with his neighbor to the south. There was an ongoing Scottish-English rivalry. You may have heard something about this. In 1495, Warbeck was married to Catherine Gordon, a step-cousin of James IV. Yes, step-cousin. James IV was hoping to use Warbeck as leverage against England, and eventually tired of his expensive guest. By 1497, he was ready for Warbeck to leave. So James prepared ships for Warbeck's second attempt at invading England. This didn't go well, and Warbeck was captured at Bewley Abbey on the 4th of October, 1497. While Warbeck was in Scotland, Elizabeth and Henry welcomed their third daughter and fifth child, Mary, in March of 1496. She was born a little more than six months after the death of her sister, Elizabeth. Upon his capture, Warbeck confessed to his crime of pretending to be a prince. He admitted that he was the son of a boatman who just happened to look like he might be related to the York family. After Warbeck confessed, Henry VII allowed him out of prison and brought him to court. Elizabeth Woodville had died five years earlier, so she wasn't around to identify her son. But Elizabeth of York and her sisters had been raised with her brother. They were all regularly at court. And it wouldn't have been just them. Plenty of people at court would have been there during the reign of Edward IV and could have seen his younger son. I can't find records that anyone claimed to recognize him. In addition, the real Richard was nine or ten at the time of his supposed death. Despite being an age, most can remember a great amount of detail. Warbeck was unable to explain how he had escaped the tower or how he had survived when most assumed his brother didn't. In my humble opinion, he was an imposter who happened to look a lot like Edward IV. Now, I avoided this next part in Lady Margaret Beaufort's episode because I feel it has a lot more to do with Elizabeth than her mother-in-law. Warbeck was, as mentioned above, married to Lady Catherine Gordon. Based on descriptions, it sounds like Catherine would have given even Elizabeth Woodville a run for her money in the looks department. In addition, she was apparently charming and kind. Chroniclers comment on both her beauty and King Henry's interest in her. I do not think Henry cheated on Elizabeth. He had no illegitimate children, as far as we know, during their marriage, nor any known mistresses. And Catherine Gordon may have been beautiful, but Henry likely knew how bad it would look to cheat on his wife with the wife of a pretender. In addition, Catherine Gordon was moved to London as a member of Elizabeth of York's household. I highly doubt Elizabeth would invite the woman her husband was having an affair with into her household. She also apparently very much cared for Catherine Gordon. I do like the joke that Allie made on Rex Factor that had Warbeck been Richard, it would have been a rather awkward time for Elizabeth of York. Just hoping no one would notice when she recognized him, right? 
I think Henry and Elizabeth's marriage was just as stable after Warbeck came into their lives as it was before. The couple's third son, Edmund, was born in February of 1499. Edmund would sadly die at 15 months in June of 1450. In November that year, Elizabeth's purported brother and her actual cousin, Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, were executed. Elizabeth and Henry had been negotiating with the joint monarchs of Spain, Isabella and Ferdinand, for their youngest daughter as a bride for Arthur. I cover this in a bit of detail in Lady Margaret Beaufort's episodes. Arthur had been sent to Ludlow Castle when he was six. The royal couple's younger children, though, were raised closer to home. This means that Elizabeth had greater control over her daughter's and younger son's upbringing than Arthur's. At the same time, negotiations were going on with Scotland for the hand of Elizabeth's oldest daughter, Margaret. This may have reminded Elizabeth of her own betrothal to the French heir. Thankfully, unlike her earlier marriage plans, this wedding would go ahead, and by all accounts was a good marriage for her daughter. While her mother-in-law, Lady Margaret Beaufort, may have had a great deal of input on this marriage, Elizabeth still played a part. It's interesting to think that the man that would marry Princess Margaret was the first man who had been proposed as a husband to Elizabeth's younger sister, Cecily. Elizabeth made her only trip overseas in 1500, but she stayed in England the whole time. She and Henry visited Calais to meet with Philip, Duke of Burgundy. The royal couple had successfully negotiated for the hand of Philip's sister-in-law, Catherine, as a wife for their oldest son, Arthur. While they weren't meeting with Philip to secure this, they may have been meeting with him to arrange Catherine's trip to England. Catherine would arrive in October of 1501. Elizabeth had been writing to Catherine's parents regularly and had assured them that their daughter would be well-treated. The two women met on the day before Catherine and Arthur's wedding. Arthur and Catherine were married on the 14th of November, 1501. Elizabeth and Henry watched from behind a screen, much like Henry and his mother had when Elizabeth had been crowned earlier. This was done because the older royal couple were often more popular than the young bride and groom. And really, they should be the center of attention on their wedding day. Elizabeth would have participated in the festivities that went on over the two weeks following the wedding. It was a big party. At the end of November, Arthur and Catherine traveled to Ludlow to start practicing being king and queen. On the 2nd of April, 1502, Arthur died. His cause of death can only be guessed at, but his wife, Catherine, had the symptoms of the sweating sickness. This disease is unknown to modern medicine. She, of course, recovered. Arthur didn't. I mentioned how Elizabeth and Henry attempted to comfort each other after receiving the news of their son's death in Lady Margaret's episodes, but I thought I'd give more detail here. They received the news on the 4th of April. Henry's confessor was the one to bring it to the king first, after his counsel had heard from a messenger. The choice makes sense. The king's confessor was the priest he trusted with his own soul. They would have been close, and it's someone he could have spoken to openly. Henry sent for Elizabeth and told her the news. She attempted to comfort him. She then left the room and broke down so badly in front of her ladies that they called for the king. He quickly came to her to try to calm her. So much had been put onto Arthur as the future of the family, and now they only had one son left. The year of Arthur's death, Henry and the court traveled extensively but Elizabeth didn't join him as much as she had in the past. Elizabeth likely conceived her last child not long after Arthur's death. 
She was 36 at the time, which I can personally tell you is not too old to have a child these days. But it appears it was difficult on her body. Iron infusions weren't a thing then, and she may have been struggling with a difficult pregnancy. It's interesting that despite being in the public eye since her birth, it's this year, 1502 to 1503, that's the most recorded of her life. These accounts give us a glance at the regular purchases that would have been made in other years. It's a great indication of what her life was like, and it appears that she was well cared for. I'm sure the next year would have been just as recorded, but Elizabeth wouldn't be there for it. The baby came early, possibly like its oldest brother, whose death had likely caused its conception. On the 2nd of February, 1503, Elizabeth delivered a daughter, Catherine. The birth had left Elizabeth very unwell. She either became sick due to an infection she had contracted giving birth, a more common event in that day, or she had bleeding caused by a birth injury. She could have also had low iron throughout the pregnancy. Today, these things are usually easy to deal with, but at the time, there was no way to treat any of them effectively. Instead of celebrating the birth of her youngest child, Elizabeth died on the 11th of February, 1503, her 37th birthday. Her daughter would die either right before or a week after. I can imagine those keeping track were a little busy planning the Queen's burial. As you can imagine, Elizabeth's death was devastating for her family, especially Henry. But they weren't the only people who were heartbroken. The people of England were equally devastated. Elizabeth had been a popular queen. She had been a beloved princess, and she was gone. They had been part of her life since she was born. I feel part of the reason her son's reign started out so well was because he was her son. Her husband, Henry VII, would live for another six years. He would consider marrying again, but he couldn't find the right person. His first suggestion to marry the widow of his oldest son did not go well. After that, he asked his ambassadors to start reaching out to look for a suitable royal bride. What's interesting is that his requirements started sounding like a list of Elizabeth's best qualities. It appears that the king wouldn't accept a second wife unless she could compare with his first. I think Elizabeth of York is rather different from the other female subjects I've covered in this and the previous two series. Unlike, say, the Empress Matilda or even Joan II of Navarre, she was never meant to rule. She was momentarily her father's heir until he had his sons. She was meant to have a life, at least in the beginning, like her three times great-grandmother, Isabella of France. She was to be a wife, the mother of future kings. Instead, due to the early death of her father and the actions of her uncle, she became the face of resistance for those who thought Richard III was a usurper. I mentioned it earlier, but I don't think anything is wrong with Elizabeth being the woman her parents had raised her to be. I say this as a devout, woke feminist. Elizabeth didn't live in the current era. Had she, I think she would have been a perfectly great queen regnant, not consort. She was intelligent and well-learned. She had a role to play that would see not just herself, but her mother, sisters, uncles, aunts, and half-brothers safe protected, and treated at the level they deserved, at least according to the social constructs of the day. She was the ideal queen consort, and she lived in her world perfectly. So, would she have made a better ruler than the person who ruled in her stead? Remember, there are two kings in this question, Richard III and Henry VII. 
In the case of Richard III, yes, because the simple fact is one of Edward IV's children should have ruled, not his brother. Richard didn't have the popularity to control things. He did in the north, but not the whole country. If Elizabeth had been a boy, she would have had no trouble preventing her uncle from ruling, but she was a girl. As for her husband, Henry VII, I think she was a huge part of the reason his rule worked. Her being his wife cut off his opponents at the knees. People could rise up against him, but with her by his side, they lacked a rallying point. Everyone else was a minor candidate. Could she have ruled better than him? Probably, but without his military support, it wouldn't have worked. They needed each other. While Elizabeth wasn't a queen like Margaret of Anjou, more a pretender like the Empress Matilda, she made her own mark. She helped stop England from experiencing another generation of civil war. She helped secure the future for her children and helped England regain footing. I don't know if she would have made a great king, but she made an amazing queen, and that shouldn't be looked down on. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod.